Hello, this is Pastor Ryan Brown, and you are listening to the Aroma of Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Let's get started. Our scripture reading for this week is Psalm 73. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 28. Psalm 73 is a psalm of Asaph in which he declares that he was very envious and jealous of the wicked. He knows that God is good to Israel, and especially to those who are of a clean heart in verse 1. But he doesn't see how that's affecting his own life as he is struggling and looking at the prosperous people. So we kind of finish in this first section, which is his envy and kind of difficulty in looking at how wicked people are prospering, and transitions into the second one, where he starts noticing that there's a change. There's a shift as soon as he comes into God's presence, into the sanctuary of God, and sees that ultimately there is an end to the wicked and an end to the righteous that are very different. And even now, as we await that, the best possible thing for us is God. He is the only inheritance only strength that we need. And so we read in Psalm 73, verse 12, Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places, thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in the moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all my works. If you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. We will be looking today at Matthew 13, 44 to 53. We've learned recently within this parable's discourse that Jesus doesn't speak a word to the crowds without a parable. And so far, he's given four parables to the crowds, 
and two explanations to the disciples. Before that second explanation, we saw him dismiss the crowds, which leads me to believe that these four parables were given in the private company of the disciples alone. As he tells them these earthy stories that carry their rhetorical punch, he actually parallels them in reverse structure with what he's already said to the crowds, connecting them back and forth and demonstrating not just that the kingdom is true, but that it's good. That when you turn your eyes upon Jesus, the things of earth grow strangely dim because his glory and grace is so magnificent. And so that begins in Matthew 13, 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which, when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth, and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for the chance of being, looking at your word, the chance to have the Lord's Supper, to then be able to see the gospel on display, see what Christ has secured for us in dying, see the foretaste of the coming again, and just be able to know the work is done. We ask today that you would continue to remind us of how beautiful and how worthy that is of being rejoiced in. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Too good to be true. It's an expression that we hear quite a lot. It seems to expose that, at least to some degree, we're cynical pessimists who think that the truest news in the world is that which is sad and gloomy. Where if there is good news that comes in, we're immediately suspicious skeptical of whether it is indeed true. But in reality, the truest news that we know, the most true is also the most beautiful, the most good. It's not the case that the most true news is the worst news, because the most true news is the gospel the literal good news and best news. My gospel's professor used to say that the gospel is not just true, it's worth being true. And throughout these parables today, Jesus declares that the message of the kingdom is worth being true, and it's worth being taught as true, and it's worth the sacrifice that it brings. And so we begin today with the parable of the great treasure, Matthew 13, 44. This is also connected with the next parable, 
uh, the parable of the kingdom of the pearl of great price, as related to the couplet of parables that were about small things growing. Those two parables together then connect and show us that this kingdom doesn't just going to start small and grow, but is also beautiful. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is proclaiming, that very message, all of that can be likened to this situation, this scenario of a treasure being hid in a field. We don't know why it is hid in a field. It's not important to the parable as such. But we do know is that it doesn't stay hidden. A man stumbles upon it. A man finds it. And when he does, he realizes that it's a great treasure. He knows exactly how wonderful this treasure he has found is, so he is willing to do quite a few things. He's not viewing the treasure as a means in and of itself or a tool. The kingdom that is being found, the king and his kingdom, is not being presented as a means to some sort of peace or prosperity in and of itself is an end and a beauty. But the parable doesn't stop there. It's not just he sees it and recognizes it as a treasure. He sees it, he recognizes it as a beauty in and of itself, and then he goes and sells all that he has in order to buy the field, in order to gain the treasure and be able to keep it as his own. Now, for various reasons over the course of the last week, I thought about buying a book. The fact that both of our cars were in the garage, in a garage for a couple of days caused me to have to think about buying a car. Okay, and I continued to think about when we might be able to buy a house, and I thought about buying a computer. But the reality of all these things that I thought about buying, there's not one of them that I would liquidate everything else in order to get. None of them are worth selling everything I own, all the clothes, everything in the world, all of the books I have, none of them would be worth doing any of that in order to gain that thing. And I don't think I've seen anyone who has sold everything they have in order to gain any one thing. So this is a significant thing. He's found this treasure. The value of the treasure is so clear in that he's willing to do what I've never seen someone do. Go and sell all that he has in order to get that. But even so, the parable is not quite done. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath find, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. 
making all these sacrifices that are unthinkable for any treasure we can imagine. And he's doing it all with a smile on his face, with no bemoaning, no grudgingness, with joy. No price is too large for this treasure that he is seeking. And that is what the kingdom of heaven is to be compared to. A man who seeks, who finds in a field and joyfully sells all that he has in order to gain it, in order to possess that treasure. So in light of what Jesus has already commanded in terms of bearing up the cross, in terms of losing ourselves, let us bear up our cross. Let us take the necessary sacrifices knowing that this is a treasure beyond compare, that the king and his kingdom is worth it all. Let us bear up our cross and let our pride be crucified. That's something that daily we as Christians need to do. But it is also something that any unbeliever should do. To begin the Christian life. To possess this treasure in the first place. To let our self-righteousness, self-interest be crucified. To turn from it such that it's dead. And turn to Christ his finished work on the cross on your account. Bear up your cross and live. Related to it is the second parable, the parable of the great price in verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. It's a fairly similar parable. But unlike in the parable of the great treasure hidden in a field, this parable of the pearl of great price has a man who is seeking pearls. He doesn't just have find it, he's seeking for the pearl, and then finds one of great price. And it's kind of like in that show, American Pickers. They're seeking for treasure of historical relics that tell stories. And they can get quite giddy over some of those things they find. But even in all of that giddiness, they haven't sold everything in their warehouse. They haven't sold a car. They haven't sold the very clothes on their back in order to secure anything. Nothing do they have to have so much that they are willing to do that. But this merchant man, upon finding this pearl of great price, does consider it to be such a worthy prize that verse 46 says he went and sold all that he had and bought it. And so again, in the words of Matthew 10, 
38 to 39. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Bear up your cross. Lose your life for the sake of Jesus. Let all of your pride, self-righteousness, and self-interest be crucified. And find the treasure the man Jesus, in which everything else in the world becomes dim in the light of his glory and grace. The gospel is worth being true because it produces in us and gives to us a treasure greater than anything else. It brings us back into the presence of God. And whom have we in heaven but him? And who upon earth do we desire besides him? He is our great joy. He is our great rejoicing. And then Jesus continues with another parable. In verses 47 to 50, it's the parable of the fishing net. And it's parallel to the parable of the weeds particularly in the point about delaying judgment versus denying judgment. Now the false wheat and the true wheat grew together until the time of the harvest, but even then the false wheat was still gathered first and burned. So too, in the parable itself, we read this, Matthew 13, 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net, that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bag, the bad, away. You can kind of hear it in the parable itself. You can even see it in some particular translations that would say for the fishing net to be a drag net. That the net would drag along the bottom of the sea. It would pick up all fish then indiscriminately. Can't choose which fish it is. Can't get it up with your fishing line and then just throw it back in if you don't want it. You're going to have to draw all to shore. But as with the true weed and the false weed, the coexistence of the desirable fish and the undesirable fish does not guarantee the survival of the rotten or the bad. But as verse 48 says, when it was full, when it was drew to shore, the fishermen would sit down. They'd gather the good and set them into containers and they'd throw the bad away. They wouldn't spare it, wouldn't spare them, but throw them out. Unlike the other parables in this section, Jesus then immediately explains the parable and what it means. Verse 49, So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth 
and sever the wicked from among the just, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. If we look back up the end of the parable of the weeds, or the interpretation of the parable of the weeds, I should say, in verses 49, 40, in verses 40 to 42, we'd read, As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Our verse 49 today essentially a summary and a shortened form of verses 40 to 41. The role of the Son of Man, the role of Jesus, is left unstated. And we jump to the angels having been sent out from him, gathering out the wicked from among the just, making the separation of what currently is coexisting and living together. And when they gather the bad from among the just, when they gather those who do not believe in Jesus from those who are just because they have believed in Jesus. Verse 50, in a direct quote of verse 42, the wicked are cast into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Which, of course, here, even more so than in the case of the true weed and the false weed reflects very much the reality, not the parable. Fish don't get burned in a furnace of fire, but neither do wheat weep and gnash their teeth. The reality of one of the best ways of describing the furnace of fire with weeping and gnashing of teeth with a crying for an end and like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being put into a fiery furnace but with no one there to deliver you. And perhaps we just need to note that the gospel is worth being true because it spares us from this which we all deserve. We've all abandoned God. We've all been to a point where this is where we should be, having abandoned God, being abandoned by God. But instead, the reality of verse 43 is present to those who believe. And the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. We've abandoned God, but instead of him abandoning us, he made a way for us to re-enter his presence 
and to re-enter his kingdom through the flesh of his son, through the new and better way, through the living curtain that was torn for us, the body broken, the blood shed. And so we have hope today, and any of us can. If you haven't done so, come to Jesus who paid the price for our abandonment of God. And so come back to God through him, into his presence, into being able to worship him and enjoy him forever. Through these first three parables, there's been a subtle hint of discipleship, and particularly committed discipleship. We particularly talked about how it's worth bearing up your cross in order to achieve the treasure that is in Christ and his kingdom. But now what is implicit within the first three parables becomes quite explicit and to the foreground in the fourth. The final parable of this parable's discourse It's the parable of the householder. Verse 51. Jesus saith unto them, Have ye understood all these things? And they say unto him, Yea, Lord. Then said he unto them, Therefore, every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. Before that last parable, you have verse 51. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asks this of his disciples, and perhaps at first surprisingly they say yes. That gospel's professor who has that point about how the gospel is worth being true was once in a Greek readings class where they were translating through Matthew. And he got to this verse and he kept saying that the answer was no. He switched in his head the Greek for yes and the Greek for no. And part of why is because it doesn't seem like the disciples would understand these things. despite my inclination to say that they don't, and to some degree, 100% they wouldn't. These words wouldn't be 100% true or 100% false. But given in verse 11, they are told that they have the keys of understanding the mysteries of heaven. Given the fact that there is no response by Jesus saying, you are wrong in what you're saying, the indication would seem to be that they understand a lot more than we give them credit for. That their answer is more correct than it is false. But regardless, the point is that their answer becomes the setting for the last parable. That in parallel to the parable of the sower, it talks about the proper response to the message of the kingdom. And again in verse 52 we read, Then said he unto them, Therefore every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven 
is like a man that is an householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. So now instead of the kingdom being compared to such and such thing, we instead have a scribe who is instructed in the kingdom being compared to such and such thing. And we know a bit about scribes, and what we read about scribes in the Gospel of Matthew might give us a reason to think being a scribe is a bad thing. They tend to be grouped up with the Pharisees as hypocrites who have lost their way from the truth of Scripture. But the term scribe does not mean those who are encamped with the Pharisees. It would refer to any who would study, write out, and ultimately teach the Bible. It would describe any who would fit the words of Ezra 7.10. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. But this particular scribe is instructed into the kingdom of heaven. And if you were to take the time to get out your phone or to get on a computer later, or even look up in an old-fashioned Strong's Concordance and find the ways and uses of this verse, you would only find three other uses. You'd find it once in the book of Acts on the making of many disciples. You find it once in Matthew 27, 57 of Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple. And you'd find it in Matthew 28, 19. Describing the mission of the disciples that is also the mission of the church to make disciples of all nations to instruct them, as it is translated here. Therefore, every scribe which is discipled into the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. Householder would simply mean someone with authority over a house. We saw a householder in the parable of the weeds. How he had his servants, he was the one who sowed the seed. He had that authority. This particular householder, though, was pulling out of his treasures things that are new and old. Not begrudging the old for the sake of the new, nor ignoring the new for the sake of the old. And even that phrase, out of his treasures, should sound familiar. Because Jesus has just used it to describe what the Pharisees are bringing out of their hearts. Matthew 12, 35, if you turn there with me. One of the last discussions with the Pharisees before the parables discourse explaining how the different responses are to the message of the kingdom fit in he says that a good man, out of the good treasure of the heart, bringeth forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, bringeth forth evil things. 
it would make sense then that this same expression is being used in the same way in Matthew 13, 52. Describing what the householder, what the scribe discipled in the kingdom of heaven is pulling out of his heart. And he's pulling out of his heart things new and things old. And of course, the scribe works particularly with the revelation of God. It would be too much in this time to talk about New Testament and Old Testament, but especially in light of the parables being talking about how he's revealing what has been hidden from the foundation. It's a new revelation that's not new in the sense of actually being new, but being the culmination of the old and the old made new. It does seem that what he is presenting so the scribe discipled in the kingdom of heaven is able to pull out of his heart for the purpose of teaching, as that's what scribes do. Things that are in the new revelation concerning Christ and things that are the old revelation concerning Christ. And I don't take that as a special class. Obviously, not everyone gets to teach in public. Sometimes it's in one-on-one conversations. Sometimes it's in children's Sunday school classes. But it seems that as we think about the gospel being worth it, as we think about how the message of the kingdom is not just true but worth being true, it's a logical step here to say that it's also worth being studied, being internalized, and then worth being taught as true and beautiful. And it would even seem to say that one mark of being a mature disciple is to be able to pull out of our hearts the new and the old to teach what we have studied and internalized and keep studying and pulling into our hearts. And so we're charged with that idea of studying, bringing it to bear, and taking the opportunities before us to teach and bring out of our treasure things new and old. Then the discourse concludes in the transition back to narrative. Verse 53, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. And we've seen those words in Matthew 7, 28 through 29, and Matthew 11, 1, that when Jesus had finished, something else happened. Marks the end of this third discourse and going back then into the fourth narrative section. And the parable's discourse has reminded us that the message of the kingdom, regardless of how it has been responded to, is true. And in this particular one, it's worth being true. It's worth being studied. It's worth being taught. It's worth being received. So let us receive it and rejoice in it, knowing that Christ did his work and it is done. Father, we do again thank you that kingdom is compared to a pearl of great price, a treasure hidden in a field. Not only does it spare us from judgment, 
but it also brings us to you, that great treasure, the best treasure we could ever imagine. Help us to rejoice in you more and more. Help us to know your beauty and grace. And help us to be so captivated by it that we desire to study it, desire to know it, and rejoice in it. Let that rejoicing in it overflow into our teaching it when there are opportunities, our encouraging of each other in this building and outside this building. Lord, thank you. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church, do remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things?